Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, welcome to the Tenzin Bagels podcast. And uh, hopefully hopefully you're already back into the regular time schedule of your sleep. If you're not from Japan or Australia, if you're from America, I feel sorry for you because I've been in the same boat. Um, I was up for long nights, um, especially because, as some of you may know, I work at Tennis Canada and I was doing social for them. Lots of the gifts that you saw, I was taking those and it was just a really fun experience, albeit just very, very tiring, um, which is also one of the reasons why I sadly had to miss on the final of the women's tournament. I just need to, I just needed to sleep. But uh, yeah, if you follow that, like, congratulations to you. You're really a big tennis fan for like staying up like all night and still have stuff to do in the morning i know owen and vanch you you two had your um, personal stories of uh personal horror stories if you will <laughs> with the scheduling yeah yeah um i mean vanch i don't know about you but i did three all-nighters over the course of the tournament i think all of them were on weekdays so i would end up going to classes and then immediately after taking these long naps like one day i took a nap from noon until 7 p.m and then just woke up and watched us all night um and it was great i can't wait for next year honestly yeah. the thing is i i don't even regret it either i pulled off like two or three all nighters <laughs> i stayed up i watched felix push medvedev in the quarters and i, I think i went to bed at around 6 a.m i just didn't yeah. even care yeah. and i had a class at like nine it was insane i took naps i like i pulled an all-nighter for the final but you know what? Don't mm. even regret it. I, I think what yeah. this tournament shows is that you don't, there was just so many amazing, amazing matches, like all throughout the, the two weeks that I feel like tennis is so much bigger than, mm. you know, one or two, three or four or five legends. Yeah. And so it, it just goes to show that, you know, yeah, tennis will keep on giving. So I, I really like it. It's, it there's just a, a very specific feeling about sitting on your table at night and then all of a sudden just look up like to the window and you see the sun rising it's just like man that happened is it's <laughs> I'm, I'm still unsure whether if it's a good feeling or a bad feeling but it's something I'm along those lines yeah but, and it's fun yeah. to share that with all the tennis fans as well um yeah. like a match finishes and twitter just explodes and you're tweeting yeah. like oh my god i can't believe that just happened and then you all just go about your day and do it again in 24 hours yeah. and it's so yeah. much fun <laughs> yeah and speaking of which um i, I guess fun she really said it's extremely well like tennis is so much bigger than uh, just two or three guys which is great because honestly at the beginning of the tournament we had we have 128 singles matches like across male um, men's and women's singles. If you don't count the doubles, if you're a fan of that and you find a way to watch it um, and mixed doubles too, which is just too insane. You just can't, that is, it's impossible to follow all this, but like we, we do all we can. Um, so yeah, there's so much great matches and um, I don't even know where to start. I guess we can just go on immediately over to the finals. Like which one do you guys want to talk about first? 
Um, we can start with the women's. Um, I thought um, mm-hmm. I thought it was a really entertaining final. Like Andre, I'm not sure how much you were able to catch up with, but in the first set, Barty ended up winning comfortably. But Collins had moments where it was clear this match was going to be closer than mm-hmm. any of Barty's previous ones this tournament. Like she was taking Barty's cross court slice and clocking some backhand winners off of it. And then the second set, Collins was up five one and served for the second set at five three thirty love. Um, and so that was an immensely dramatic set at the end. And it had a really electric finish in the tiebreak. I thought it was a really fun final. Yeah. Well, yeah. the one thing I know from watching Collins and Barty, like I haven't watched anything of the final, unfortunately, only a couple of shots here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I checked out the tweets in the in the morning, like a few of them were still trending. So I know how close this match was. And I know that Collins is a fighter. And I know that she fights even when she's match point down, like 5-1 in the third set. Like, y- you cannot expect that she will be just down, even if your body, like core number one in the world. Like, even if you're a Serena Williams in your peak, I think you should be careful with Collins, honestly. <laughs> so, like, I I was legitimately scared that, like, Barty might, again, suffer heartbreak. So, yeah, so I was kind of really happy when I saw that she won in the end, like, extremely deserved. The reaction just shows it all. But in terms of tennis, I will have to let you guys take the lead on that because I I have no idea tactically or strategically how that match really went. So, yeah, sure, was, yeah. I, I mean, Vonch, how did how did Vardy win this match? I mean, it was a tremendous contrast because here you have um, Collins who hits uh, what I think is one of the best backhands on the women's tour, probably the best at the moment. The way she can just take the ball from the middle of the court and just go inside in, inside out, just absolutely crush every single. Uh, shot and it was an interesting match because um, obviously Barty steamrolled through this entire tournament. She only lost 21 games and wrote to the final. And um, you know the whole theme of the two weeks was sort of who can deal with Ash Barty's slice backhand the best, who can um, find different ways to find the weakness of Barty, which is up high on the backhand, and who can stretch her out because it's not easy because she has one of, one of the best serves of women's tennis at five foot five. And she just hits all their spots and all, all the locations. You can mix uh, so much variety on that shot as well as the, obviously the slice really helps her sort of set up that um, forehand. And it's very good defensively and offensively as well. But I thought Collins was handling it, was handling it really well and uh, was sort of forcing Barty into some more errors. And it, it was quite close right in the beginning as well, because um, I think a turning point in the first set was at two all, um, Ash Barty was break point down. Yep. And she she comes up with a really clutch inside in forehand winner that sort of hits the line. Mm-hmm. And from then on, she gets the break and uh, sort of just uh, goes through the first set 6-3 without too much of, too much trouble. And then in the second set is where you really see um, sort of, I mean, the crowd willing Barty on, but also Collins really putting up some heavy resistance and um, pushing Barty into, some, into a few more errors. Uh, coming in, uh, I believe she put she crushed a backhand cross court and then finished it with an inside in forehand uh, approach shot. And then that was to get the break for 2-0 in the second set. And then she sort of held that advantage and broke again. And then Bordy found herself 1-5 down, um, serving at 30 all. And from then, the way Bardi played um, under serious pressure that she was under to... At that point, I feel like you sort of have a choice when you're down with 1-5 and two breaks in a second set like that. Like either you can sort of just you know, let the set go and conserve your energy and focus all your attention on, okay, I'm going to start strong in the third. And instead she didn't, she really just uh, stuck with her, stuck with her game plan, got more aggressive on her forehand, uh, got, got more short balls that she was able to do damage with. 
and Colin suddenly felt the pressure of closing the set. So it was a very interesting dynamic. And then, of course, she plays a fantastic tiebreak, um, breaks yeah. twice, and then plays a fantastic tiebreak, I thought, too finish it off it was just yeah absolutely i mean the things her forehands did from one five down i, I remember um she had a return winner i think at one five fifteen all and then yeah. in the three five game she was down 30 love and at 30 love she hits a return winner and mm-hmm. 30 15 i think she played maybe the most important point she played all tournament she um right. she takes a forehand inside out collins hits a cross court backhand and Barty wheels into the doubles alley to try to get around it and hit another forehand and crushes it inside in. And I thought she missed it, but it was right on the baseline and there was no call. And she landed it right on the line. Um, and then after that, she forced an error with the forehand to get a break point. And then she broke in the next on the next point. Um, and I mean, she did what all champions do, which is um, all the best champions do, which is trusting your strengths and the big moments. And you know, she didn't have a particularly taxing route to the final. So I think this was not a match where um, players were kind of strategically budgeting their energy. She was going for it even at 1-5 down in the second set. And she made her shots. It was incredible. And then the match point as well. Um, Collins hit a pretty good approach and Barty um, passed her with a cross-court forehand and then kind of just like howled at the heavens in celebration. Um, she the said most, afterwards. Best I've ever seen, the most emotive I've ever seen Barty after. All. Yeah, yeah, it was incredible. Um, she was so amped. And um, she said after she watched it back and she was like, that that doesn't seem like me. That's weird. Um, <laughs> but I I mean, I loved it. The The crowd was really into it. I will say um, the crowd was rough on Collins. I think, um, I think Collins was smart and she had a different temperament from a lot of her other matches. She was much less emotive. Um, like really didn't show much frustration or um celebration she celebrated some when she got leads in the second set but besides that i thought she was pretty contained and i thought that was smart because the crowd was so pro barty that doing anything to antagonize them i think is playing with fire as medvedev would find out in the men's final um (laughs) and i was impressed with how contained barty was as well even when she was down one five in the second set i don't think she showed frustration once she like was keeping herself contained um looks like she trusted that she would figure things out and she did hmm. you mean for Barty, right yes okay yeah and i think one thing that just kind of like putting this out there and it's it's been a lot of a uh, lot of the topic on twitter was the fact that collins had to overcome so much hardship as well like just to get into this final like starting from like last year when she had like a surgery as well mm-hmm. um and i think it just really just goes to show just how how hard people are having to work. And I think it's really cool that we have like in social media, just so much information about this and like just how people are sharing those. Cause like it makes those stories so inspiring, I guess. Like, uh, and we, we all know Nadal whom we're going to talk about like in a minute, uh, but yeah, just like real, real major props for, for Collins and like sticking to, you know, her guts and like just trying to actually like make a make her career even better. And, Honestly, as I said, like I was actually scared that Barty might lose. So I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if Collins ends up winning one or two Grand Slams like over the course of her career if she keeps her level as high as this. So mm. who knows? I think what's what's so amazing about Collins is, and you know, obviously the adversity that she's gone to is gone through is very real. I mean, she she had endometriosis so, last year. Uh, she suffered tremendously. She was very open about her autoimmune, like her arthritis problems and her condition. And I think uh, people really sort of appreciate that she's one of those more refreshing people in the sport who sort of speaks her mind, but does it in 
it does it in it's does it in this kind of um, uh, assertive way, but it's really really like refreshing to watch because uh, she says she speaks her mind and she's very she's very open and at the same time she's quite funny as well. So it's a it's a good mix and and she's and she's one one player is like you always ask the question in a grand slam final um, is someone going to be awed by the occasion. Uh, with Collins, that was never even a question because she mm-hmm. believes and backs herself so much in these moments, and and you could just see it. And she was struggling throughout the week. Actually, I didn't even know this, but she mentioned this in her press conference that she's been she'd been struggling with some lower back pain um, ever since the Clara Tossin win. So, I mean, that's like three or four rounds of sort of cumulative pain, and then she she felt like she couldn't rotate on some of her shots even in the final, and you know she was just going for it regardless and. She mentioned that she doesn't, she didn't quite, she didn't sit down in a lot of the changeovers and just, you know, drank some water, ate, like, you know, got got energized and then just went to the next changeover and it was, um, it, it was quite a it was quite a good week I'd say for fans to get to know Collins, uh, mm-hmm. maybe outside of tennis Twitter as well. So uh, and mm-hmm. she's now in the top ten and she doesn't her clothing sponsor actually expired so. I'm pretty sure she won't have any problems with that after getting to the Australian final here. Yeah, I mean, brands better be getting on that. Um, yeah, yeah, I was also really impressed with Collins. I thought, like you said, Vaughn, she was not awed by the occasion at all. I thought she played a remarkably composed first major final. She w- clearly went in with a plan. I thought stuck to it pretty well. And I, she handed Barty her toughest test all tournament. Um, and the crowd, apparently. Yeah, I mean, the crowd was the crowd was rough. I mean, at... Um, at 5-3, 30 all in the second set, Barty had a really aggressive forehand, and I don't think Collins would have gotten it back, but the crowd started yelling as she was going to make the return, um, and so she had like a brief chat with the umpire about that, but like even that didn't really rattle her. Um, she mm. looks like it was a legit complaint. She made her point succinctly and then went on and played the next point. Um, and I mean, I think a lot of players, like again, like Medvedev, would have completely lost it, um, and she didn't. She stayed in the moment and tried as hard as she could um and i'm not sure if i would bet on her to win a major but i definitely wouldn't be surprised by it um Mm. and as for barty i'm like i mean the sky's the limit now isn't it like she can win on any surface i think this is the most pressure she's ever faced um like to win her home major and she did it without dropping a set um so now i'm like i is she just going to be like pressure proof now like i don't see Mm. her being awed by any occasion ever again um and she's the best player in the world on all surfaces so like what what's it going to take to beat her you know i i can't wait to see like what she does this year because i think she could win multiple more majors i think her coach even said before her semifinal match that there's a lot of girls who are just trying to practice their slice just a day before they play her yeah and it's sort of (laughs) he sort of compared it to like cramming for an exam you know, because it's it's just not something that a lot of players on the WTA ever face. I mean, mm. there's just not many players who use slice. Very few do. I mean, Sarah Saribas Tormo, one of them, um, maybe the Victoria go- Golubic, and, you know, maybe yeah. two or three others. But those aren't players you you normally face very, very often. Right. And Vardy's and is also just better than and all of those. Like, it's, it, is. Yeah. It, it's, it, it knifes more. Um, she can hit. She can hit it anywhere. Um, yeah. She can hit passing shots of the backhand slice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, um, it's just such a joke. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I totally agree that it's a very unique shot um, and players need to prep for, for it more. But for me, what the more remarkable shot for her is, is the serve. Like, I think yeah. her serve might be like what it's probably one of the best shots in tennis history. I mean, she's 5'5". She's the shortest player in the top 30 
um maybe like the top 50 i stopped mm-hmm. looking up player heights once i got to 30 and she like serves better than all of them i mean her her motion is technically perfect like she's short and she serves so incredibly well um i mean there are players half a foot taller than her who can exploit more angles who should be able to get more speed and Barty serves better than them it's incredible um yeah like that and i think the slice because it's so unique gets a lot of press but i think the serve is more special it it is i mean she got on the art broken three times this whole tournament (laughs) twice in the final and then once against anisimova at the start of the second set in the fourth round i mean and that's wild like she played some good returners and power players like she played keys and demolished her um and especially if you if you come to think that um a return of serve is probably one of the biggest characteristics of the WTA of like the past probably 10 to 15 years. Like mm-hmm. the only server, like the only couple of, you can even pinpoint like in your, in on the fingers off one hand, like big servers that like when they're on, they're good. And like some of them would be like Serena Williams, the obvious one. Then you have Venus Williams, who has a really powerful first serve. Maybe the second serve has a bit more of like an uh, iffy, if you will, and um, then you could you could say maybe Sabine Lisicki when she's on she can serve well too, but she she was never really a player that consistent to make that work for herself. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I think it's just like breaking the status quo, like for Barty, like in the tennis game, just like what are people not doing that I can do that is gonna just like throw everyone off? And like um, you take for example wins from from players like uh, Bianca Andreescu as well who was really big on uh, slicing forehand and backhand. And then like, yeah. just um, yeah. body just probably just made it like a little bit more of like part of her game plan in a sense to just uh, game style. Um, and I think it's just really awesome to see just how um, the fact that she only got, got broken, like um, how would you say like three times during the tournament? Yeah. That's, that's I mean, pretty ridiculous. Just, yeah. Just yeah. So in control of that. Shot some people, some people control. hold serve three times, like during a. Right. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I feel like, yeah, this, yeah, this, and- this for me is just like really just the idea that if players want to compete more against her and like compete for the future of women's tennis, they do need to develop those two shots much better than it is right now and it's great that body is five foot five because it really sends a message to everyone every player out there just like hey you don't need to be six foot to like hit big right. serves you know right. you don't like, need to no know. matter who you are your serve yeah. can get better um yeah yeah i mean yeah it's it's just amazing what she's doing i mean um i think pliskova is another one who serves really well and they played in the wimbledon True. final last year and Barty outserved her um yeah. like her her numbers were better it was it was amazing. And yeah, I think um I think players are gonna have to change the way they play because I'm trying to think of if Barty plays her best, who can beat her. I feel like short mm-hmm. of Osaka peaking on a hard court, I feel like it's on Barty's racket, like in any matchup. Yeah, it really sort of just depends on her. I mean, even at the US Open, I think we got sort of that one match against Shelby Rogers, mm-hmm. where where mm-hmm. I thought actually Rogers did something that was very interesting in that in the end of that match, she just started moonballing. Uh-huh. And just changed changed up the rhythm and just started hitting high balls deep to her backhand, and that seemed to work for uh, for a bit. But I don't know how sustainable that really is. <laughs> and unless you can really take the power out of her hand, like like a peak Osaka or like a, a redlining Bedosa, like I don't, I just don't know how, how how do you how you get that to work. And and that's what I think women's tennis going forward, um, it could really use a rivalry like Osaka Barty, 
Yeah. Uh, because that's that's one match that like I've watched. I, I think Barty has won 11 of her last 13 finals, and the one final she did lose was against Osaka in Beijing, which was a WTA 1000 in 2019. So it's been a while since they've played. But really, that's the only p- player that I see at her very best who can who can stop Barty. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, on a hard court. And it's not that there aren't flaws in Barty's game, but she protects them so well. I mean, it's no secret that her top spin backhand is problematic, but she hides that. I mean, like she hides that more successfully than anyone since, I don't know, maybe like a young Federer has like protected his backhand. I mean, that's sort of how I see Barty right now. I sort of see her as like a 2004 Roger Federer. Right, because she can can slice the hell out of that wing. You wish Viantek was was left-handed right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, and... um, and so it's like, and like, yeah, her toss and backhand is bad, but like, how many realistically are you going to be able to make her hit in a match? Like, yeah, I don't know, five, 10, 15. Um, like, I think the one thing, yeah, maybe Collins could have done more is like approached to the backhand more because, um, like you said, Andre Barty can hit slice passes, but it's a really low percentage. Like, it's not something she's going to be able to do all the time, and her toss spin passes are very iffy. So I think, um, I think that's why you can force the issue a little bit, but. Yeah, and Barty can run around and hit her forehand from the ad side. Like it's extremely hard to exploit that weakness, even though it's a fairly big one. Yeah, yeah the court cuff is just yeah. so good. Like in that area, she can lob yeah. you. She can hit it low. Yeah. She can hit a low drop volley at, like, with her slice. She can just kind of just kind of like push over the backhand side, but just set up her next shot. It's it's really hard to exploit. Yeah. Like what you say. I think it's in a sense is is the same problem that players faced against Roger right like how can I wrestle the, the this rally from your hands right it's just yeah. like if you can do this like players look what p- players had to develop to do that like you have Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal who's probably the best two defenders in the history of the game and they went on to become probably the biggest bigger than Federer really like in yeah on w- in tennis. which we'll get to <laughs> yeah yeah in tennis and I'm not talking about like in general like this is a media conversation it doesn't matter <laughs> right now but like yeah like it it takes that much to to be players like that. And back to just like Australian Open in context, I think that's it was something that probably is gonna release a lot of pressure from her, like going into other tournaments and back into Australia next year. I think if she hasn't well, it's she obviously has already proven that she's a very deserving world number one, but like mm-hmm. just how much more is she going to dominate after this yeah. is is a big question. And it's just so refreshing to see her holding that trophy, honestly. Like, I can't yeah. wait for her to win the US Open, just complete the entire, that card of, like, Grand Slams. I think it's it's great. Right. I mean, like you were saying, now that she's achieved this, um, I mean, like, what what is there next? Because Wimbledon was her childhood dream, did that. She's just won her home major. And so now I feel like if she has solid goals, she it can just be, like, win everywhere as much as possible. Like, I mean, she's got so many weeks at number one already. I mean, there's the career slam, which I think she'll get, even though her coach kind of had that weird quote about players like her not being able to yeah, win with the current I, balls. I, don't I thought really that was that. weird, and I don't really agree with it. Um, I don't really but I mean, awkward. like, besides <laughs> besides winning the U.S. Open, I feel like she can just be like, I want to win as many as I can and build as huge of a legacy as I can. And I think she can go a long way. I think yeah. she can, yeah. I and mean, she has a lot of potential at the U.S. Open. She's only, she's been to the fourth round twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and she could definitely win there. Like, I don't yeah. see why not. I mean, it's probably the hardest for her to win at the end of the year uh, after having so much success. And um, yeah, like the conditions maybe, but like, I, I don't know. The quote about the balls, that was more just, you know, taking some of the pressure off, I think, <laughs> more than anything else. 
So, yeah, I mean, if there was one player on the WTA who could go on and do sort of a calendar slam kind of thing, thing like Djokovic, absolutely not saying she's going to do it. But, mm-hmm. like, you know, if there was, you'd probably back her just because yeah. she's so versatile. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I could see her defending either or both of Roland Garros and Wimbledon. Like, I think um, maybe betting that she'll win three this year is a lot, but I think um, I, I think she will win one of the next three as well. Yeah. I do. I do want to see... Um, obviously we are 100% getting ahead of ourselves here, but like, uh, hello, recency bias, but like going to Roland Garros, I just want to, I want to see, um, players who we backed up a lot in this tournament itself, uh, and were dark horses for a lot of people like Contavate and Krejcikova, mm-hmm. um, who probably played one of the best matches of the year. Can, cannot not remember that match is ridiculous back in, I think Sydney. Um, yeah. And, um, when uh, Krejcikova is going back to Roland Garros, I really want to see like what this can ha- what can happen like in terms of whether like they both meet in the final. You know, like I think it would be really interesting, and I think there will be a lot of um, if if something like this were to happen, I think it would be a, like a really good storyline. Like you, there was there would be a lot of uh, narrative and, and backstory behind um that final if this were to happen so i think it'd, it'd be really good for tennis to see that happening yeah yeah I, I mean i think one of the main takeaways i had from this uh australian open on the women's side is like there's sort of three players right now that you can sort of bank to get to the second week of all of these majors and that would be Barty, shriantek and krajikova it mm-hmm. really seems like i mean especially krajikova she's made quarters uh quarters of us open quarters here and uh, fourth round of Wimbledon and Shriantek has now made semis of Australia as well and even though she was thoroughly outclassed in the semifinal and her second serve was quite exposed by Colin and Collins and some of the weaknesses like she has on on a fast court she's uh, consistent enough to put herself in these situations and now finally start winning matches uh, from a set down or you know when she's facing adversity like she was for example against Kanepi in the quarters here and uh, found herself um, a set in a breakdown yeah, so that it's was kind a of, remarkable kind of, one. Yeah, so it's it's just it's just nice to see players sort of back up the results uh, and live up to their seating. And I think we're starting to see that a bit more on the women's side with um, some of these top ten players. Mm-hmm. And and I think another amazing thing is that Sviantek is only twenty. Um, yeah, and she's already really well rounded major champion and, and it feels like she's been there for like five years already exactly yeah. yeah i mean i was writing about her and in the middle i was like i like it's important to remind ourselves like she is only 20 like imagine when she's 24 and she knows all there is to know about playing on the tour um she could be incredibly dominant um i'm really excited to see that um i think i was thinking back to our podcast before the tournament and i thought it was kind of funny that when we were talking about Barty. I was just kind of at a loss of words and I was like, she's just so good. And like, so I'm glad yeah. that she, um, that she won the tournament and backs that up because she is so good. Um, yes. Absolutely fantastic player. I think yeah. I picked uh, Barty against Contavate in the final. Yeah. I, I don't remember who, I, I think I went big on Halif. I think I might've said it would be Barty and Halif. But, um, but to be perfectly honest, Halif had a perfect week until she lost. <laughs> but yeah. She was doing really well, honestly. Like I was really impressed. I was like, maybe yeah. she's gonna make her run for it. Like, uh, I'll tell you that that match hurt me uh, against Cornet. I mean, it was amazing. Cornet is a spectacular player. She showed amazing resilience um, yeah. to finally break the fourth round curse. But I was like, I really wanted Halif to do well after 2018. Um, 
when she got so close and played so well. And she was wearing like a very similar outfit to the one she wore in 2018. And she was on Rod Laver again, playing another exhausting attritional match and saved match points and then lost again. I'm like, of course, this is just what happens. Um, and But I, I will admit it bums me out a little bit. So I hope I hope eventually she gets some good luck there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys did way better than me in the predictions. I mean, I, the only thing I got right was Shivante getting to the semis. <laughs> Everything else was way off. I went really big on Bedosa because of her yeah. success the week before, but I didn't quite realize how much of a toll it took physically, and I wasn't expecting a super amazing performance from Keys, who, who impressed me yeah. quite a bit yeah. in beating Kritikova and yeah. Bedosa the way she did and backing up her and getting all the way to the semis. So that was yeah. another good story in the fortnight. Yeah. You, you, you actually did put a lot of uh, on, on Keys. You're, you're just really saying, I don't know, Keys, she's doing well. And she's, you, you just didn't feel like you, yeah. you, you had enough. You were you just weren't brave enough to bank her, honestly. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you kind of called the shot like a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think Bedosa had a disappointing tournament at all, though, because Kostyuk mm-hmm. played an incredible match. Um, and I yeah. think in the... I don't really think Bedosa could have done much um, to recover for the next round. I mean, I I picked her in the Murray Musings prediction game, and I was um I was on a call with Scott when Keys was just demolishing her, um, and I was like, oh no, you know, I think maybe Bedosa could come back because it took me a bit longer to, than everyone else to realize that she was physically not quite there. Um, and he yeah. was making fun of me and tweeting about it. And I was just like, come, come on, man! <laughs> like, I, I I don't need the salt in the wound. Um, but I think. I still think she had quite a good tournament. Like the way she fought was incredible. She played yeah. some great tennis and I don't think I'll think any less of her chances going into the next major. Yeah. 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 And so hopefully she'll have a good Roland Garros. She's mm-hmm. a good clay court player. So very yeah. good. Yeah. And coming back to, to Cornea a bit, of course, like she had like a, an amazing tournament and like she made people cry, which is always kind of cute. Yeah. <laughs> um, all the best for her. Like a, at this point in her career, she was saying like it could even possibly be her her last season from her words that she was she was speaking. So mm-hmm. awesome! Like I was I was even imagining like who knows maybe a Cinderella story could be in the making and she wins it. And then like she pulls up like this amazing quote about like you guys who win slams you're, you're crazy because it's so much effort that it takes to play two weeks. It feels like it's been a year that I've been playing this tournament mm-hmm. and. After this, and in particular, the match that Sviantaik played against uh, Kanepi, which is probably the match of the tournament um, um, on the women's mm-hmm. side, I don't know. Maybe the second week? <laughs> I, 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 I might fight you on that. I thought um, okay, I thought on. it was really competitive and dramatic, yeah. but I thought the quality was kind of spotty. Um, okay, right. I think the best match point, absolutely. Um, yeah. That was but yeah in, in, in terms of that, I just, I just think, like, uh, coming back to best of five and best of three, I don't even know if if it, if he lacks on the women's tennis like a best of five just to like, see this much drama and just the best of three matches is doing is doing pretty well honestly like it's 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 getting physical maybe you would like to see a trial of this like um, of course like the men's side really showed us why best of five is amazing with like great comebacks by Daniel Medvedev almost great comebacks by Gael Monfils Denis Shapovalov and another great comeback by Nadal in the final, which was probably the most un- un- improbable one of all. <laughs> but, Alcaraz yeah. got close as well. Uh, in the third yeah, round. very, very true. That was yeah. a great match, by the way. That was one of my favorites, yeah. 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 He I played mean, a terrible tiebreak in the end, but he's only 18. So. Yeah. I mean, um, an image from the tournament that's like one of the clearest for me is he actually won the first point of that tiebreak to get a mini break. And he mm. he steps up to, um, to serve at 1-0. And he's just kind of nodding. 
like it's this incredibly cocky yeah nod. i remember he, like this. taps his head with his racket a little bit and i'm like this guy looks so confident that in that moment it seemed impossible to me that he would lose the match um yeah. and so when he did i was kind of like what just happened like i was so positive he was gonna win yeah. um and i mean he you know he did fold a little bit in the end but like yeah. man to have that much confidence at 18 when he's kind of like Fiontech, when he's like 23 24 oh my god he's gonna be such a menacing opponent yeah. and he he already looks menacing to be fair like you see his arms like dude's already gigantic yeah. he, he worked his entire off, yeah. spent his entire off season in the gym like that's all yeah. He, yeah that's what he prioritized and he didn't play any tournaments leading in and we all thought mm-hmm. how's this form going to look but actually that was a yeah. conscious decision by him and juan yeah. carlos ferrero which just shows you how forward thinking he is and how yeah how yeah. much he, how long term he's thinking, and like how, how good of a great. prospect he, he yeah. really is. But I, yeah, I thought Cornet going back to that, that was such a good yeah. story because here she was being interviewed by Yelena Dokic, who was supposed to play her in 2009 had she beaten Denera Safina in the fourth round. And of course, we know what Dokic has all, all the stuff she's gone through. She had a really abusive mm-hmm. father, and she's yeah. suffered a lot, like emotionally and uh, traumatically, like in her life, and so that interview that she did was really wholesome and heartwarming. And I think it moved a lot of people actually to tears. Uh, so that was, that was just a phenomenal moment. And she, she, it's stories like that, that I feel like really come through in the majors and really break through in a way you don't see on the regular tour, because here you have Courtney who's been playing these majors since 2006. This was her 63rd yeah. main draw of a major and she'd never been to the quarterfinals and she's a really good player. I mean, this player just beat Halep a really physical match and she she backed that up by i mean you thought second round beating Mogarutha like that was a big upset but you thought okay probably you know it's going to quiet down and she'll maybe go down to hell up or lose in the third round and she actually kept that up so it was mm-hmm. that that was just one of the one of the great stories on the women's side yeah mm-hmm. but yeah yeah i mean th- that match was so brutal those conditions i mean yeah. it was bad enough during the match Cornet, she was ahead she was up a set and she asks the chair can we close the roof um and i think the chair said no i think Cornet had a quote where she was like it's it's barbaric or something and the chair was like reminding them you know you only have 25 seconds between points i'm just like come on close the freaking roof like this is this is crazy um there was a point where the ball was still in play and halep hunched over because she was so exhausted I and then she I won the point that. after that. It was it was the wildest stuff. Um, Worst possible conditions you can play in. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised and, they didn't apply the heat rule for that one. It was ridiculous. I think they did after the second set yeah. was over, but even then, it's like yeah. I mean, I, I think it was like late. right up against the line <laughs> for a little bit, but not quite there. I mean, Halif, like I really thought Halif had like survived that match because Cornet looked dominant and Halif looked exhausted, and then Halif kind of did that thing where she lives like right on the edge of the abyss and just looks completely shattered, but still manages to play amazing tennis. Um, mm-hmm. And then it yeah. looks like she was physically dominant and Cornet was shattered, but then Cornet recovered for the third set. Um, and I mean, Halep saved a match point with like, I think probably the shot of the tournament, like the ball. Um, so the she serves. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like um, it's high to her backhand. She's running backwards winner down the line like how the hell did she do this and then immediately just hunches over like she did that when she was exhausted in the massive heat running backwards off a high ball it was crazy i thought she might have pulled out the match i had a i have a little bit of a thought about the roof just because there were like rumors saying like circulating i think on twitter that like i think the australian open was already like 
they already exhausted all of their funds. And if I'm not mistaken, to close the roof, it costs like millions of dollars because like it's because it's so much energy that you have to put into it. So just like just like that one little button that you press to close the roof, like it just exhausts like so much energy and like power that like I feel like the Australian Open just like let's try and like live this tournament with as little like money spent as possible. I wouldn't imagine like the players probably eating like egg sandwiches for lunch, honestly, like because it's <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> I'd want to just for lunch. It's 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 like it's like the the story about like when the airport is like if you take one olive out of the plate, you're saving millions of dollars a year. That's probably what they did. Is I was like, let's just instead of like 350 grams of rice, we're gonna just do 325. <laughs> let's just save way, money just, like just that. Down, like how good does Thailand look coming out of this tournament? Because here oh you my have, god, dude, I, I, devils, I was losing it when all the all the finalists are like, I mean, tennis Australia, but especially Craig. Like you guys just oh, do such yeah. a great job. And I was like, you're joking. Like how? I mean, Rafa yeah, so. after winning the match, Rafa like he doesn't him. he <laughs> hugs Craig tightly, <laughs> like he was his long yeah, lost. Relative. The players just love him because of because of what he does, like for like supporting them with uh, anything that they really need, like throughout the tournament with physios and like just he's always like there for the players. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, honestly, that's probably what what uh, cost him a lot is he's so there for the players <laughs> that we know sort of um, the that he kind of played in in the first two weeks of this whole month. Yeah. So we're not going to get yeah. into that. Yeah, we already got into that a lot. He's like, um, I know he's done some great work, but like, man, he he biffed it so badly before this tournament, and it was like everyone conveniently forgot. It's just crazy, just because like it's a lot of uncertainty, and I don't want to. I want to give him just the benefit of the doubt that he probably thought everything was going to work out very well until it didn't, and then it's just it's just like it's just. I mean, criminals think that like exactly. It just feels like he he probably had a plan in place. And, it, and everything seemed to be going well. And then, like, I feel like he just didn't count with the, the problematic Australian government immigration system, which is, like... And I, obviously, I don't want to get back into it, but, like, I'm just happy that the matches of the tournament just made up for a lot of the tournament, to be fair. Yes, I so, think yeah. I think the matches went as well as they possibly could have in that. They were entertaining. Yeah. They were dramatic. Um, we got two popular winners. Um, and it, I think, almost completely took the focus off this debacle that preceded the tournament yeah. um so should we segue into the men's final which exactly well maybe not one of the best matches ever was one of the craziest and most dramatic um and most surprising as well mm-hmm. i mean i don't think i talked to anyone who figured nadal could win in the way he won it was all like no. if anyone was well, predicting the, nadal at there was all, there was, was one five sets it was the most no, unlikely yeah. scenario out of yeah. everything that could have happened yeah. There was one tweet of a guy, I think it's Bastien Fashan. I think on yes, Twitter he, yes. he actually yes, said yes, that exactly. Yes. I actually had to t- look it up. Like that, there's no way you tweeted that before the final. <laughs> I I thought he was insane. I mean, so for me, the most remarkable thing about this match is the length: five hours and, and twenty four minutes. minutes. This is the second longest match of Nadal's career. It's the longest match he's won, and this was after like a forty one minute first set, which means. After that first set, the sets were like an average length of 70 minutes. I mean, that that's as attritional as it gets. He he not only lost the second set, he lost it in this really tiring way at, and choked a few leads. Um and I mean I and I didn't think he would lose the third like six one. I thought he would fight, and he did, but like I was amazed he had anything left in the fourth. It was when he went off a break in the fourth that I was like, okay, yeah. this 
right. now now I think he could maybe win. Um, but I just can't believe he had enough in the tank for that. I thought I think this, he had no chance. This match yeah. was sensational because it was like two matches almost. <laughs> it's <laughs> like you could start with the first match right from the first ball. And I mean, just the way it started with, 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 with Nadal just barely holding on like yeah. with every last drop of energy that he's seeing, it, it looked like he'd already been playing five hours, right? But it started yeah. because he, I mean, because of how comfortable Medvedev was in these baseline rallies, just massaging the ball, just maneuvering him around, just prepared to outlast Nadal, you know, which is not something you, you most people have a game plan of doing, but Medvedev is one of the very few who can, who can do it mm-hmm. with his amazing shot tolerance and his uh, just amazing consistency from the baseline. And he just has that ability, sort of this, Djokovician way to sort of take advantage of Nadal's high balls like those topspin he was getting nothing on those topspin backhands in the first set and even the slice wasn't working well for him he was having to yeah. hold it took him eight ten minutes to hold his serve the first two service games mm-hmm. and Medvedev was just cruising and putting the pressure back on and he was getting so many free points and you know mm-hmm. I think the conditions were quite hot and we know what happened um, two rounds before when Nadal struggling with the heat stroke I mean just the whole uncertainty of this entire one month for Nadal. I mean, three months, four months ago, he had foot surgery. He didn't know if he was he was going to play. Then he gets COVID, and then you're thinking, okay, this is this is probably very unlikely. I mean, second Australian Open, who would dare to dream, right? Right. And then, and then he wins the the warm up tournament, and you're thinking, okay, that's that's decent prep. But you you thought, okay, quarter semis, okay, he was pushed, but and you know, not really somebody who can really quite challenge him to the very hilt. And then you have Medvedev in the final, and then yeah. you have the way the first set plays out pretty relatively comfortably 6-2 and and then even in the second set I mean Nadal started going started going to the slice a little bit more he got a bit more aggressive he started I mean his serve was not even working in the first two sets I mean he yeah. was under 50 percent it was like 50 percent first serve in to, to end <laughs> the first the set he got broken yeah. to love twice in a row um just crazy like, Points yeah in a row it was um head. yeah I mean those first yeah. few service games he was having to fight so hard. It was almost comically precarious. I mean, you guys remember yeah. those two points at one all love 30 in the first set where like Medvedev had a put away, yeah. went down the middle, Nadal like stuck his arm out at it and the pass went in by like an inch. And then the second point, again, he was at Medvedev's mercy and Medvedev hits it straight at him. It was like, um, and then as soon as that lock went away, he got broken at love. I mean, um, yeah. Vance and I were talking before um, Andre got on the call about a point at, um, 2-4 love 30 where Nadal hit a forehand down the line that hits the outside of the line like I was surprised it was called in and Medvedev just runs it down and slices it back um and just kind of provokes Nadal into a brain fart bad drop shot and then passes I, him. I saw that um, it was like this slice that stayed super low close to the, the yeah. service line right yeah yeah it, it was ridiculous and it was like when someone is defending that well and someone says like oh you know you need to go for the lines I'm like I mean, here that didn't even help because Medvedev was even getting those back. Like there's, mm-hmm. he was getting drawn into such long rallies in the third game. They had a 26 shot rally. Um, at the start of the second set, they had a 40 shot rally. I mean, it was such exhausting stuff. And since the narrative coming in was that Nadal was going to have to win economically, he looked screwed. Um, yeah. And then boy, did everything change in the third set. Mm. I think it's uh... mm-hmm. Just even going back to the yeah. second set, yeah. you know, I, I really felt like, okay, he's he's not serving well. He's losing a lot of these long baseline exchanges. The slice isn't really working. Mm-hmm. The he's not even he's not really able to hit close to the lines, but he still gave himself a chance. And so I thought going into the third, 
there's still some hope here for this to be a somewhat of a competitive context contest. I mean, he had five, three set point in the second, in the second set, and he had a five, three lead in the tie break. I mean, and before that he was up four, one and Medvedev Mm -hmm. plays this amazing return game to break back. And in the tie break, I mean, I must say Medvedev, the four points that he plays from five, three onwards, just crazy. Unbelievable. I mean, that's like, I think, yeah, I think for, for me, like when I was watching this match and like especially the, the first set, it kind of set a bit of the tone and I was expecting Nadal to fight back because it's it's Nadal. And if you know one thing is that Nadal is going to try to give himself a chance and like playing at least a couple points that are a little bit better just to keep the opponent guessing and knowing that he's still there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like for me, it's like Medvedev's shots were just ridiculous. Like they they were flat and they were just landing inches like from the baseline. And he was executing a plan that Djokovic was executing to perfection back in yeah. the days when Nadal was in his prime. And now Nadal is like way far from his prime. So I was like, this is, there's no chance that Nadal is going to do anything about it because Nadal's forehands were rushed. His slice was not effective. Like even his backhand was, he was hitting it a little bit too passively for me, especially yeah. in the first it was, two sets. It was just floating. Um, it wasn't. It was yeah, and, it, and then like all of a sudden, I think is in the third set, and like he's just tried start, started going a little bit more for this. Like it, it's probably started getting a few for it, and like by the fourth and fifth set, he was already like, okay, I'm just gonna go for it because I yeah. I don't care anymore. <laughs> and yeah. it's and to and on the Medvedev side, on the other hand, just as I think Vanshu just said it perfectly, like it's two matches, it just flipped. Um, Medvedev's shots were just landing short. Nadal was having plenty of time to hit his forehand, like just wind up and like hit that ridiculous spin. And it feels like Medvedev was cramping. I'm not entirely sure if that's true, but like he did it's say nice in the final, yeah. yeah, he did say in the final against Djokovic in the U.S. Open that he he was starting to cramp at the end. And I'm not sure if this is a problem that Medvedev will have to address if he was actually like feeling the heat, like um especially like physically maybe he needs to bulk up just a little bit more maybe he's a little too skinny he he can yeah. outlast opponents but like can you keep outlasting opponents for like six hours like because you might have to play a few of these like, yeah, already you know, played, I, mean, like I think yeah. it's a good point you make because actually yeah. that could explain some of the shot selection errors that he was making yeah. especially in the third and fourth set i mean we saw him go for a ridiculous amount of drop shots which did not have a great success yeah right i mean he had 24 drop shots in total i think in, in the match and only two were outright returns so that just tells you, like, I mean, a lot of shots that, you know, he had Nadal right on the back foot. And rather than going for the backhand down the line, which he was doing so well in the first two yeah. sets, I mean, just that cross-court pattern that we know Djokovic loves to use, right? The yeah. backhand cross-court hard into the Nadal forehand and then open up the backhand down the line. I mean, that's what Medvedev was doing on in the first two sets. And it just quite wasn't, just wasn't planning out that way. And I think Nadal making those wrinkles that he was making in the second set, albeit not winning it, I think... I think Nadal also felt like, how do I get the ball past this guy? And so he was trying to, he was working in his mind. The wheels were turning right, right, in, right in every single moment about how he can somehow problem solve his way out of this. Because, I mean, and then we saw, we saw what makes Nadal so great is that even when it looks like he's tired, even when it looks like he's running on fumes, even when it looks like Medvedev is tight, he just got so much more aggressive. I mean, the last two sets were about as good as Nadal can play. I mean, it was just supreme uh, the way he was. I mean, and he still wasn't serving great, but he was playing so well from the, from the, um, 
with his backhand. He was ripping his backhand down the line. He was. I think that was the shot of the match. His like his his backhand down the line was absurd. He was just hitting like flat bullets down the line from that side. Yeah. Probably. What, like, what was the uh, what was the shot that um we had the 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 gif that of Sviantek just kind of like completely surprised like. I forget. I think uh, it was a forehand down the line of pass to, to break to break in the fifth. Maybe that that was a crazy shot. Yeah, um, it was. Just, yeah. If it, it definitely was like vintage Nadal at some point, it, it, yeah. the forehand that he was hitting, like the backhands, he was probably hitting better than a few of his uh, two thousand seven eight matches. For sure. um, but like, um, but, but here's yeah, what and, I think also is that like mm-hmm. you know Nadal, a twenty five year old Nadal, could have outlasted this guy. Absolutely. No, but, I don't but think this match could, would have lasted. But I think what really showed is like what else he has in his in his toolkit, right. like the amount of things that he has perfected in his game, the last ten years. I mean, it is just insane. His four court game, his ability to finish points off and counter attack mm-hmm. off of Medvedev's finishes, because Medvedev was doing a really poor job of finishing in this match um, yeah. when he had when he had opportunities. He was he was not playing aggressive enough with his mid court forehands, not really do, doing too much. Was forced to come in on a lot of shots that. You know, normally, I mean, he could get away with it and he could probably hit a decent volley, but he was just not confident in that short, when Nadal was hitting that short slice or bringing him in, uh, or a lot of times he would hit his drop shot and then he would not follow it up to the net. He would start backing off. And the moment he started backing off and backpedaling back towards the baseline, you knew Nadal had him stranded because either he was going to hit a really fantastic redrop or there was one point where he went for a drop shot and Nadal just had had an easy down the line opening and he just put it away. And it was just like, you know, his head was just scrambled at some point. Either that's a combination of, uh, uh, I mean, Nadal anticipating him probably going for the wrong start selection, but also him probably feeling it physically. I mean, he knew also Medvedev also had quite a physical route in, to get to this final. He played three and a half hours against Cressy. He played five hours against Felix. Mm. Uh, you know, the first two, three sets against Tsitsipas were played at a fast rate, but mm-hmm. still somewhat physical in some points. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was just fascinating the way yeah. the whole thing has changed and i think nadal might be the worst opponent to dip physically against because not just because he's yeah. fit himself but because so much of the game plan against him is to deny him time on the forehand and neutralize that shot yeah. and when you start to get tired your shot quality suffers and that lets him really open up on that side which means you have to run more so as mm-hmm. you get more tired his shots are going to go closer to the lines which is just a horrible combination and i think that really showed itself early in the fifth when yeah. Nadal was winning every single rally. Um, if Medvedev's serve came back, he was losing the point. I mean, there was yeah. a point at two all 30-15 on Medvedev's serve, and Nadal hits a good return. Like, not not great, but good. And Medvedev hits this backhand to hit Nadal's forehand that had so much air under it, it looked like something I would hit. Um, and of course, Nadal hit it for a winner. And it, it really felt like... Um, you know, the low trajectory of Medvedev's shots was gone. Um, there was so much air under everything. And that's a death sentence against Nadal. Mm-hmm. And that was why I thought it was so weird that four hands down the line, Nadal hit to break it to all. Because I was like, he's he's winning every rally. So clearly the play is like, keep the ball in between the lines and you'll win the point. And on one of the biggest points of the match, he aims right for the line and hits this absolute lottery ticket of a shot um and made it yeah. which was too good that was yeah, yeah. um i think mark petchy <laughs> said that is the best shot nadal has ever hit and i don't know if i agree with that but i think it was <laughs> one of the most important um i think just to show how improbable this was mark petchy also said a two three love 40 i think this is the decisive yeah. point of the match yeah yeah. So, yeah yeah he was like and um i, was, I, I don't I was, even blame yeah. him because i thought the oh same. for sure yeah, yeah. I, I mean let's well, let's talk about that point because it was two three love 30 
Nadal hits a huge serve, and then yeah. he hits a smash. And Medvedev yeah. oh. lobs it had, over his head yeah. and then ends up hitting a backhand winner down the line. I mean, big point, but also, like, I mean, the way he won it, it looks like just another reiteration that he could neutralize the best of Nadal's offense and then turn the tables on him. Yeah. For me, was, the, wasn't there also an... Oh, wait, actually, go ahead, Andre. Oh, uh, go ahead, because you're, you're talking about this game. I just want to mention something different. I think while that. you brought that up, that smash up, uh, that uh, that Medvedev got back, and he set up the three big points. I also remember there was this one smash in the fourth game. I mean, in the fifth, fifth game of the fourth set, at two all, which is where Nadal broke after the seventh, <laughs> he broke on a seventh break chance, and there was this one, there was this one smash that I mean, my goodness me, did Medvedev like really just he did not put that ball away, and it just he had to go just run all the way back to the baseline. And he just oh yeah, this kamikaze yeah. smash, and it was, it was, just, yeah, it was this baseline smash, and it just hit the top of the frame, and just that that ball sails to space. I mean, yeah, yeah it was just you know shots like this yeah. sort of. It, it just really highlighted like Medvedev and he just needs to work on finishing points like at net because yeah. you can't win against, against the best players without that hole in your game. Yeah. It was it's just a, exposed on big points. I think this, this match, it, it gave me flashbacks of so many of Nadal's matches in Australia. Like it, it gave me um, flashbacks from 2017 flashbacks from 2012 flashback from last year like when he missed this match against Tsitsipas and then he was right. all over like he missed he missed one I think is like when he was serving for the match for the first time um he he missed yep. this match like right into the net like he let the ball bounce and hits this match like down the line right into the net yep. and you have to say like this is definitely Nadal feeling the nerves of like closing this match out because there's no way Nadal would ever miss that he didn't miss another one until the and he went on to win the match, but like yeah. that one was like this is this is the human side of Rafa showing. Oh, yeah. and then like I I remember like when he was ahead against Federer as well, like in the fifth set against and um, yeah, in, I mean, uh, he, he referenced 17. all those matches afterwards. Yeah, yeah. he was yeah. ahead against Djokovic and hit the as you said, like he had a, an easy um, down the line pass. He had an easy down the line pass against Djokovic. And he yeah. he could have been like think. 40-15. Yeah. 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 And and he missed that. And then like match changed completely. He right. also um the, the last the last set he was a little bit of a flashback to Shapo's match when he broke to to start the, the fifth set. And then he just kind of like gave up on every single return game to just <laughs> concentrate on and he did that exact same thing and then he got broken, which was like the last twist in this match. I was like, this match is gonna go to a tie break. And if it does, it's gonna be amazing. I really wanted to see one. But like at the same time, it's like, my gosh, this match has already given pretty much everything that you could have right. given at this point. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, can we talk about how ridiculous it is that Nadal won this match? Because not only physically did he last like two hours longer than we thought, but he had moments like that in the fifth where it looks like it was going to get away from him again. He was up yeah. 3 2 40 15 yeah. and then ended up having to save three break points in that game. He served for the match at 5 4 30 love and ended up getting broken. And then you should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. 
BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Medvedev was up 30-15. Actually, I forget now. How did he get broken? He had a double fault. Yeah, so um, 30, 30 love, two running forehand error. 30-15, yeah. um, double, double fault. 30 all, Medvedev hit a winner. And right. then 30, 40, easy backhand into the net. Easy backhand in the net, yeah. right. And he was definitely thinking about it. it was... Oh, yeah. He um he was smiling Absolutely. after he got broken. Like, he, yeah. he knew what just happened and how important it was. And he was like, and you could tell he was having the flashbacks. I mean, he drops the F-bomb on Eurosport <laughs> yes, because yes. he was having these flashbacks. And so I'm like, how did he break back? Because, I mean, I think this might have been the most important point of the match for me. When Medvedev is serving at five all in the fifth, he's 30-15. And, and so if he, if he wins this point, he's probably going to hold serve. And then even if Nadal holds to get it into a tiebreak, thanks to Vance for the set, by the way, Nadal had not won a tiebreak against a top 10 player since the World's Tour Finals in 2019. I yeah. think if it had gone oh, to a tiebreak. Yeah. in tiebreaks. Yeah. I think if it had gone to a tiebreak, Nadal was going to lose. And so at 30-15, Medvedev hits a drop shot to Nadal's backhand side. Nadal runs it down and he hits his trademark cross-court flick. Um, it limps over the net um, and it's a winner. And that made it 30 all. And after that, there were a bunch of deuces, but Medvedev never had an ad. And Nadal broke on his third break point. And I and think. Then, and then on that break point, I think Medvedev finally decided, okay, I'm going to unload on a forehand. Yeah. yeah. But he and just he overcooked it. Yeah. And it was, yep, there was yeah. just no confidence anymore and, in the shot. And it, was, and it was amazing because I was watching and I was like, this is maybe as much luck as Nadal has ever had at the Australian Open. Like he's he's fought, he's got himself in a winning position. He blew it, but for once, his opponent let him back in. Yeah. Like usually, was, yeah. usually when this happens, the opponent runs away with it, and it feels like his window, you know, closes as fast as it opened. But yeah. here, he got another chance. Um, yeah, yeah. It was, it was fair, just perfect I, for him. To, it was just yeah. perfect that it had to go this way. I was gonna say like there's there was no other way that this could happen to Nadal and his yeah. fans. Honestly, like I feel like he deserved it. And yeah. and honestly, like the the celebration that Nadal had at the end, I I stand that very much because like I was really 100 expecting the classic like just kind of like throw it into the ground like uh, just kind I, I of wanted like, that. And so I I didn't want that because I was like that's too that's too cliche right now. And like what he did, it just kind of like. Just kind of like puts his hands like yeah. on his hips, just kind of like smiling, just kind of goes like um, doing like the the sign with his head, and just I think that was so so funny to me to say, just kind of like I think he was thinking as well in his head, like, do you guys even believe this? Like, can, can you guys even believe this happens? Like this, like what happened in in my head? Yeah, and that was the celebration was showed um, that this one was different because he's won twenty one now. And the only times he hasn't, um, besides this one, the only times he hasn't fallen to the ground have been after, like, blowout major finals. And you can tell it's because he doesn't want to, like, disrespect his opponent. Um, yeah. And this one, I thought, for all money, he was going to, like, fall to the ground and um, and lose it like he did after the 2019 US Open. Um, but, yeah, he just, he was just, like, in delirious, uh, euphoric shock. Um, and, yeah, I think... Um, I mean, holding to love in the last game impressed me. I mean, there was this moment yeah. at 30 love 
when I was like, okay, he needs to win this point because if he loses this point and it's 30, 15, he's going to get flashbacks to five, four, and then maybe he gets broken again. Um, and he hit an ace and, um, and at Just the start all, of the match, by the way. Right. Um, and, and I went back to watch it because he kind of reacted with like this fist pump and, but it was like, um, it was almost like a weak fist pump and he was kind of, yeah. yeah. And it was like, it was written in his face. Like, Oh my God. Like I'm like, I'm still fighting. I'm still fighting, but I'm so tired. And I'm so glad that now I'm like assured victory at 40 love. Like it, it felt like there was, he was near his limit. And so I went back to rewatch it because I wanted to write about that reaction. And I noticed that serve was a let the the thing beeps. Oh yeah. And, and no one noticed. Uh, Nadal didn't notice. Medvedev didn't notice. Umpire didn't notice. It was an ace. Um, I was like, that, that was a big deal. Like that was a huge point. And it was a let and no one noticed. Um, what the hell is that? Yeah, this this is crazy because like in the era of everything electronic to have this happen, it just feels like I'm watching 1980 McEnroe versus Bjorn Borg. Like this is <laughs> this is definitely what he feels like. This is Yeah. Um well an, yeah. another crazy thing is it happened at on a set point of um a Venus Serena Wimbledon final as well. Um first set, Serena hits an ace out wide, it's a let. The umpire even called it, but no one heard. And they walked off the court and the umpire didn't say anything. Um, Are you serious? Just, just yeah, let it happen. Um, and I mean, <sighs> I and I went to back to watch that. it and I was like, crazy. Oh, oh my God. This, like how? Yeah. <laughs> this is one of the things that I kind of have to agree with the, when Medvedev was like talking to the umpire at some point, just like step up. Because like, I feel oh, like yeah. the umpire is a little too muted in tennis lately. Just there's a lot of a bit too much of star power and i feel like tennis kind of needs to get back on his feet again just the empire needs to do something other than just call the score and okay, correctly so, by the way yeah, because <laughs> there were cases in which the empire just called right. it entirely wrong i, I mean so so, so i think so too but the crowd i mean is screaming and yes right and he doesn't quite have a view of like everything around him yeah and so i feel like if there were like some more officials like around Probably. the stadium they could pick some of these things up like you know for example the coaching stuff or like the uh-huh. The things behind where the umpire is sitting yeah, like, yeah. it would just make things so much more efficient and yeah better and just like controlling the crowd in this kind of environment i mean it's just because the crowd was like 95 percent pulling for nadal like it right. was just oh, yeah. and and i mean some obscene things were said there's a clip where um someone yells at medvedev go back to russia um xenophobia comments z- like, xenophobic it's it's terrible yeah you should be ejected immediately for i mean that sort of thing for you can you can have all your views on, on pol- politics and stuff like that there is obviously like a lot of things happening to russia right now but this is this is just low like the, you don't you don't just make comments like that it's so bs like why yeah why would you say that and like um and i think some people were saying after the match like you know i i think i even said this before i saw the clip like you know maybe this is medvedev like, because he he had these quotes, and some people are saying maybe this is him stewing in a tough loss, and he won't feel this way. But I feel like if if he was referring to comments like that, I mean, he's well within his rights to say yeah. all of that and feel that way. I mean, and yeah, I thought I thought for the most part the umpire did an okay job. But another thing that drove me nuts was like giving oh, yeah. Nadal a time violation at yeah. five four thirty forty. I'm like, man, this is one match where Nadal has done well with the clock. He's been on it all night, hasn't gone over time. And the first time you warn him is on break point when he's serving for one of the biggest matches of his career. Are you serious? Like mm. uh, imagine, imagine if Nadal had lost the match after that and you could point to that time violation and like, Oh man. Yeah. yeah because it's, it's like, he didn't even get a soft warning or anything like to even suggest that he was going over. 
Well, I, I mean, I think, I mean, the first one is a soft warning because you don't lose a surf. I'm just like, why would you call it for the first time at one of the most dramatic points right. in the match? I, just, like, I think that the way that umpires call time violations are just wrong in general because you immediately interrupt the service motion. Like you can just give him a violation like after the point is over. It wasn't, wouldn't it be more efficient? Just like the guy's like picking up the balls and maybe it would still disrupt him, but like it's not disrupting him like while he's on the the routine to serve which is like probably right. more important than just going to the towel you know what i mean so like i feel like just doing that is is just almost the equivalent of like a player just going like go medvedev like while he's like tossing the ball like it's 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 just not great um so for all the things that are done with like the the shot clock and and time violations i think that there's a lot of things to be studied about how to do this properly because i kind of if there's a shot clock and there's a rule maybe we need to apply it but isn't there a better way to do it? I mean, not to, not to make a joke out of this whole thing, but like, what if what if that actually happened and he got a time violation and then a player was just like, "That's hindrance." Look at the umpire. Can you? Imagine? <laughs> I feel like that would be the most hilarious thing ever. Is Medvedev saying that? Like, yes, hindrance. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can imagine. I, I mean, this is going to be on Sunday's TV. The thing with this rule is like they either need to like call it all the time with appropriate discretion or never call it at all. Because I'm like, if if that if that 30 40 point was really the first time in the entire match he went over time i'm like please just just let it go come on like I think what drives me nuts about the shot clock is like it depends on when the umpire actually calls it yeah, like yeah. when the umpire starts the clock and so that's that's up to the umpire to decide and then it's like you can take forever in between first and second serves mm-hmm. so yeah. i don't really see and it's not like it's changed anything from yeah. when it was introduced like players are like going quicker or anything like that and it all included and it's yeah. It you can also like take it served its purpose. Yeah, right. You can also take forever on if you hit a let. So yeah, yeah. this right. is yeah. never going to happen. But imagine a player just decides to tr- practice hitting lets on his right. first. Or, or you can toss the ball and catch it, <laughs> and then it resets the clock. Um, yeah. Which and is what I would do if, if I felt pressure. I mean, it's up to yeah. the return to go at the server's pace. So you're just stuck at his mercy. Yeah, and exactly. At that point, um, like, yeah, which is so so annoying. Yeah, I don't know. I. I, I think the clock yeah. has resulted in a lot of useless discourse and very little useful discourse. Yeah. Like, I don't really know it, what, to, really what I would do with the, the clock. It's definitely not like. a topic that, that interests me at all. Like, just like right. whenever it comes up, I just, you know, you have to talk about it, but it's just one of those where it's just, uh, yeah, it could I, be, I think it's so I, I would agree with um, you. That was one of my biggest wishes going in, into the match. I was like, please, Nadal, like, go fast enough that this does not become an issue because the oh. he's always open. on the edge you know that's yeah. the, that's the thing yeah and, and so and i'm kind so of glad yeah. that the first like 90 percent of the match nothing happened because i was thinking back to the 2019 us open final and there nadal gets the first warning in the first game and then loses a serve when he's down break point in the fifth set and then loses a serve again folks. um when he is serving for the match like yeah, was... the, the first time serving for the match, and then he hits a double fault. Right, or, or a single fault in that case. A single um, fault, yeah. But yeah. yeah, I mean, and I was just like, uh, I I hate it. Um, but I was glad that that didn't play a huge role in the end. Yeah, yeah. It was... Do you guys want to talk about how he stands in the goat debate now? Or... <laughs> I mean, well, sure. Yeah, yeah I'm I mostly think, um, just just making a joke about it. By the way, <laughs> if you don't want no, to, no, I mean, um, I, th- that was something that I I was wondering about because we we have talked goats on this podcast. I mean, I said from before the tournament, um, even if Nadal wins, I think Djokovic is still better than him, yeah. and I and I stand by that, even though I think the recency effect of Nadal winning the final 
in as epic fashion as he did um makes it feel more important because i think um I, like the double career grand slam is amazing and huge and i think this decisively puts him above federer but i think the fact that he's never beaten djokovic at the australian open looms large for me um mm. djokovic has beaten him at the french open and so i think regarding djokovic it's like 150 extra weeks at number one surface versatility nadal needs a gap of at least two or three majors um to even his case and so i think if he wins roland garros as well and it's 22 20 then i'll think like okay maybe maybe the two major gap can make up for those things but i think right now with it still so close in total count um Djokovic still has an edge for me but i do think it's close i do think it's a debate again um and i do think yeah. federer is kind of out of it now mm. That's a pretty good take. I mean, I would, I would say like, yeah, it's pretty close now. Um, I, I still put Djokovic ahead just because of his sheer weeks at number one. Uh, the, the yeah, this, the surface versatility, like winning two of everything, is is pretty big for for Nadal now. Um, I think I think it just I think it puts him ahead of Federer like decisively because I, I I always said like if you know if they're tied on twenty and if Rafa wins one that's not Roland Garros mm-hmm. and sort of does like another Australian Open or another Wimbledon, it's it's pretty tough to argue that, you know, you'd put Federer ahead of him, and especially with the given the head-to-heads. Uh, he has a losing record against both and all of those things. But I, I think it'll just continue to be a debate, but I I, I still, it's it makes it a lot more interesting because now the next major is the French and he has a chance to pull a, pull ahead by two, which yeah. is pretty mm-hmm. big. Um, yeah. But yeah, like it's, yeah. It's a it's an interesting debate, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it, it's become interesting, especially yeah. I guess from the Federer side, because now now you have like not a three way anymore, but it's, yeah. it's it's clearer and clearer that it's just a two way debate. But in, I think it's just great for Nadal and to finally go ahead into this into this uh, into this race because once Sampras was just taken out of the equation and just both Rafa Nadal and Djokovic overtook Sampras, it was just about all these three. And then Federer just led this uh, Grand Slam race specifically for just so long. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, like, for me, it just, it kind of closes a little bit of an, an era in my in my head. Just, it closes the Federer era as the, the greatest of all time in my head. Just because finally one of his biggest things is overtaken. Like his number, weeks as, his weeks at number one have been finally overtaken by Djokovic, but it, it just the Grand Slam title just seems to mean a little bit more, and uh, it feels like now that Nadal has taken that, Federer's career seems a lot closer to be over, and that's just something that I feel like it's interesting to to think about that the big three um, surpassing each other in the later stages of their careers. I think it's. It's yeah, just going to I be mean, a nice I, chapter I to, to close this one, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Federer has had the record since Wimbledon 2009, so he had it held it for 12 and a half years. Yeah, and it took it took him, you know, it took Djokovic until March 2021 yeah, to right. get that number weeks at number one record. So I guess that's yeah, it's pretty. You know, he held it for quite a long time, and he sort of, in essence, showed what the bar is, and yes. the other two have now surpassed it. So that, I guess absolutely, that's, and I think um. I think even though for us, Djokovic is still the GOAT, um, I think it's kind of funny because this is definitely, for me, the most the mainstream have regarded Nadal as the GOAT, um, even though I think he probably had a better case when he won the French in 2020 and Djokovic was still at 17. Um, because now, I mean, like if you don't pay a lot of attention to head, head-to-head and stuff like that, it's so easy to regard Nadal as like the permanent second. 
Um, and so I think people kind of always regarded him as the second behind Federer, and then more recently, maybe the second behind Djokovic. But the fact that he's now first in the major race f- forces people to evaluate his goat case a little bit more. And even though I don't think he cares, I think it's a nice tribute to how hard he's fought because he has been second for a long time. Like he, he might've broken through in 2005, but he didn't become number one until 2008. Um, He's like, he tied the major record in 2020, but until now he has never held it unopposed. Um, I mean, neither has Djokovic, but I think it's kind of a given that he, he will at some point. I mean, maybe not anymore, but it did feel like that for a while. And so it felt less of a big deal for him. And so I think it's, it's just a nice moment for Nadal. Like he's, it's kind of the message that like, if you fight, if you like win matches, you're not supposed to win. If you overcome obstacles, like eventually, like you will, you will get records and stuff like that. Um, and I think, I think he deserves it. Um, I don't know how long this will last. Like I think Djokovic could very well win the French and tie it again, but I think it's nice that he has this moment. Yeah, I think it's nice. I think it also should serve as motivation to Djokovic that you oh, know, yeah. look, that, you know, this is what happens. You know, right. I mean, this is this is the worst thing that could have possibly happened for him. I mean, down to the last detail, right? Because Nadal wins. Medvedev doesn't win, but he doesn't drop any points. So he's still going to be taking away number one soon. Um, Nadal wins in epic enough fashion that the world is awash with goat talk now. Um, and I mean, yeah, like Novak could have stopped all of this. Um, Nadal would not have beaten him in the semifinals. Um yeah. So I think it it is it is a really interesting debate. Like it is it is close in a sense. Like I think now you know you look at it like the, you have these two players who have been dominant at their own slams. Yeah. With the Dalin never having lost a French Open final 13-0 and Djokovic 9-0 at the mm. Australian Open. But then you kind of look everywhere else and it's like they it's win half, they lose half. It's yeah. like nine nine and you know eleven eleven. And it's yeah. like I think it's it's somewhat interesting because I mean if Djokovic were to sneak a U.S. Open or a, another one because I really feel like that's the slam where he's had the least amount of success in the in the finals, especially. Yeah, it, at least like relative picks. to his potential. I mean, um, it's it's weird because um, I feel like the U.S. Open is for Djokovic what the Australian Open is for Nadal. Um, yeah. I, I feel like the, the French Open feels more justified because Nadal is always there as a gatekeeper, but the U.S. Open it feels like there's really no reason why Djokovic hasn't won more. Yeah. It's it's really it's really quite confusing actually because yeah. it's like you know here's the best hardcore player but then he's nine and nine <laughs> in the hardcore slam finals and it's like it couldn't be the more opposite because it, like Australia is his is his turf is his court he comes fresh after a long after yeah. a well rested off season it's like just perfect for him crowd support conditions everything mm-hmm. then you get to the Australia you get to the U.S. Open the last major tired pressure young guys breaking through. Uh, Chaos in the draws. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, you it's know, crazy. Uh, accidentally hitting lines people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Getting injured. Um, just playing yeah. losing matches he should have won. I mean, it's crazy because I think 2011 he should have lost. And then the next three years he probably should have won and lost all right. of them. Um, you know, but, and I think it's it bodes well for Nadal that he did manage to sneak a US Open when Djokovic was number one and he was in his prime and sort absolutely. of come back in that, that very important third set, you know, and then, then Steam rules with the fourth. Yeah, th- that's one of his biggest wins. Um, I think uh, I'll tell you what I'm excited for is just this rivalry. Like I, now that like at the French Open match last year was amazing, but I kind of thought it signaled a bit of a closing of a chapter because 
of the way Nadal faded physically at the end, I was like, I feel like this is the last match like this that we will get between these two. But after watching this, I'm like, if if Nadal had enough for five hours and 24 minutes, like, yeah, like, let these two play at every tournament, you know? I want to see them rematch at the French and then play again at Wimbledon and play again at the U.S. Open. Um, I feel like the possibilities are kind of limitless because I think Djokovic hasn't faded physically much. Nadal has not faded physically as much as we thought. Um, He's got momentum now. I think motivation is going to be as high as ever for Djokovic. Um, I mean, this is the best rivalry of this era. So I, and I think it's got a lot left after this tournament. Yeah, definitely could get to up to 60 plus matches between the two. I mean, yeah. it's, it's possible given like Djokovic, you'd still think has some time left and Nadal is, as long as he keeps managing the foot pain, because it is something that he, he definitely has to manage. It's not something that, you know, can be treated necessarily, but it's just about pain management. And right. I think the fact that he's, given up that, that he's put all of his efforts here is just is just remarkable i do think he is genuine when he really says he's not worried about you know how many slams he's winning and in relation yeah. to Djokovic and federer because i think it really was purely genuinely about giving himself a chance to compete right. and just be healthy and play tennis again because i think he really had serious doubts two months ago about if he can ever come back in the sport i mean he looked in a really bad way uh when we saw him and uh, Washington when he came back. Yeah, that was that was tough to watch. The Olympics. Um, and you know, I think he'll sleep just fine at night because just knowing that he squeezed basically every ounce of his potential. Yes, I think that's what just that competition is what Nadal is really all about. Yeah, and and those nerves at the end of this final, those were Australian Open nerves. Those were not twenty one nerves. Um, like I, I've really come to believe him when he says he doesn't care about that. And I think what drives it home for me is like. If um, he could change his tune now and say, like, I have the most majors, I am the greatest. Um, and a lot of people would not be able to argue with that, but he's still sticking to the size of the garden thing um, and all his cliches and like, it's boring and it makes no sense, but he clearly believes it. So I think at this point, yeah. you just have to accept it. I think it's, the um, best part is that he makes it make sense with the way he says yeah, it. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, I mean, that just that's just who, who he is and how he was raised. Yeah, I mean, he, just, a, just a heads up for the listeners. I had to do something, so you didn't hear my voice for a bit. But I'm just catching up with what the, the guys were discussing yeah. right now. So, yeah. so yeah, yeah, we, we were I think I think his, that um, the, I think that his celebration at the end kind of makes me believe more because he felt like he didn't believe that he won the Australian Open, not his 21st major. Right. To be fair, but like, yeah, I think, yeah, it, it, it's probably his accent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's. It is so interesting. Um, I think people were talking about on a Twitter space that uh, Courtney Wynn uh, started that it's interesting now that the guy who cares least about this record is the one who has it, at least for the moment. Um, yeah. I, and I, I wonder if that'll eventually play a role in what ends up happening like when they retire, because I feel like Djokovic will only retire when um, I feel like he'll keep playing out of a desire to like get these records and or keep them out of reach. And I feel like Nadal will keep playing more to like have more matches like this Australian open final. Um, and I wonder if that, if either one of those things will make one or both of them retire sooner or later. Um, Cause those two are kind of mirrors of each other, but they also have opposite philosophies at times. Um, I, I was just talking to Von Chandra about how um, I want to see these two play like a billion times this year now. Um, yeah. Cause now that Nadal has surprised me with his physical durability. I'm like, yeah, you two like go play five sets at all the other majors. Um, like keep it going, you know. Yeah, yeah. we need another Roland Garros epic. 
Yes. Probably yes. another Wimbledon. It may be a US Open. I, I mean, I, I really want them to rematch at the French Open because I think... um What we do need is we need team back. We need Del Potro oh, back. We need, we need, we need Nadal back. to face Federer at the US Open at least. We need Dominic just pull off a miracle yeah. and just come back once again in Wimbledon yeah. and just... I think not be yeah. the last time. One thing that Federer said, um, which is I think was really interesting, is that um, he said that he doesn't necessarily care whether he's his record um, of Grand Slams is broken, because he said once I've held, I've held it. Like yeah. once I had the most Grand Slams, and that nobody can ever take for, take away from me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's great. Honestly, I feel like he's also not necessarily. He probably is like way over the the hill on like record and everything like that because yeah we were just forty years old just game. trying to come back yeah yeah and I think Djokovic he would be the one that would be the most devastated if he does, he doesn't necessarily like finish his career with the this mm-hmm. record in particular I think he if he finished like tied with Nadal it's one thing he finishes with less I think it's gonna break him a bit yeah but um but at the same time I feel like same thing probably for Nadal it's like it wasn't something that he would. I, I can imagine Adele saying something along the lines of like, it wasn't something that I was looking for particularly, mm-hmm. but I did it. And it's something yeah. that I also can say that nobody can ever take away from me. I mm-hmm. once held more majors than any man on earth. Yeah. yeah. He, um, the way he seems to think is like, um, it's not something like I sought out, but it's nice to have. Um, yeah. Like, you can't deny that it's nice. Um, and it's kind of interesting as well that all of them have what ifs. Like, I think. You know, for Federer, the what if is like if he wins more of those big points, he could have a huge lead. Nadal, like if he's not plagued by injuries, he could have a huge lead. And Djokovic, if um, you know, I mean, his what ifs are, I mean, much more under his control than Nadal's at least. Like if he, if he doesn't hit that ball and if so he gets two jabs in his arm, he could have a yeah. huge lead. Um, yeah. I mean, it could be it could be twenty two nineteen right now. Um, if he had not hit the ball and then played this one, um. What really struck me is like Nadal said after this match that he never, he never felt prepared physically to play yeah. matches like this, and that that he you know he he thinks his body was sort of not ready, right. and I was sort of worried for him when he lost that first set. I was like, this could be another annihilation, like twenty nineteen Australian Open, where he just can't get into the match because it's just a level too high, and just it just makes it all the more remarkable that he he found a way. He he just he he found a way again. Two or three love forty in the third set. Like I just, it, it has to be one of his most satisfying victories for sure. You know, after yeah. two thousand eight Wimbledon, two thousand nine Australian Open, I think, and all of his other Frenches. But this one is right up there, just because there's no way he expected. He he believed, even he believed. It's got to be the most improbable, right? Like the yeah. others, um, we at least knew what he was capable of because 2008 Wimbledon, he had been building to for years. 2009 Australia mm-hmm. felt less surprising because, um, I mean, I wasn't around to watch his life, but because it because 2008 Wimbledon had preceded it so recently. Um, but this one, yeah, I mean, I'm just so amazed that um, that like he lasted this long um, yeah. and that he he won because I think like I, I can't state enough that like. Um, his fighting spirit has like made a, made for a lot of great matches, but it doesn't result in that many actual successful comebacks. Like there have been a yeah. lot of times when, I mean, this was his first match. comeback from two sets of love down in fifteen years. Fifteen years. 15 like there years. are so many times when he comes I mean, back. This is from the greatest fighter ever. Yeah, ties mm-hmm. it and then loses anyway. Like I, when I think of his fight, I think of him pushing his opponents to do crazy things. Like it, it results in a crazy level to beat him. 
but a lot of the time he still does lose. Um, And here it was like, kind of like I said earlier, finally his opponent gave him an in um, and, and he took it. Um, Yeah. What is, that's probably a little bit off topic, but what do you think it's more impressive? Like um, this win by Nadal or um, Federer's win against Nadal in 2017? Because they're they're pretty similar in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Uh, of course, like Federer was playing a com- uh, a player in Nadal who was also coming back from injury, while Nadal was playing a player who's probably never been fresher in his life, right. except for probably like a very short off season. But it's different than coming back from injury. So. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think it means sort of different things for both of them. For for yeah. Federer, it was just sure. spectacular because it ended a long drought of like four and a half years of not winning a major, and him. You know, I think he was out of the top 10. He was 17th in the world, playing yeah, yeah. in his 17th turn Australian Open, you know, at major number 17. And he, he his draw, I mean, his path was so improbable because, I mean, he had like Burdich, then he had, I mean, Djokovic and Murray losing definitely, you know, made things a little bit easier, but not, not by much so, at all. Still a nightmare draw. Still yeah. a nightmare of a draw. He had to go through three five-setters. Yeah. But I think at least, I think the difference is that his level of play by the third round you just sort of, you knew, like, if he played like the way he did against Burdich in that third round match, he had a chance here. Yeah. Whereas against Nadal, I think the draw had to clear up a bit and you still had doubts going into the final because you didn't know if it was like deja vu again in the quarters against Shapovalov. Mm-hmm. He lost a set against Hachinov. He came back against Berrettini. That was a really good first two sets, like about as good as he can play, but then it's also a very good matchup. So okay. you're just really not quite sure. And so the final was just so uncertain from that standpoint, whereas Federer and Dahl, I mean, there, there was sort of a, um, you know, there was a sort of a, I guess, an expectancy that if it got tight, then Rafa would probably take advantage given their head-to-head and given, given their history and, uh, you know, Federer's tough route, even tougher than Nadal. So I think it's just the only similarity really is that they were the same age when they both accomplished this. Mm-hmm. And they both, it was like a miracle and things had to align. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. um I think there are some really interesting contrasts because I think um I think Federer's whole tournament level unquestionably was better. Um I think before the final mm-hmm. here, Nadal got away with like not really playing close to his best and not getting yeah. that close to losing anyway. Um like I w- but then I think the finals in isolation. Um I mean this one was like 2 hours longer almost. Um is mo- a monumental thing. Um so I think I think this final was more impressive as a tournament. Federer's was probably more impressive. Um, and I think it, it's also interesting to see, like, um, I think this one was also impressive because just because of the Australian Open being a house of horrors for Nadal. Um, like the Australian Open Federer, I think it won four times before 2017. So I think he had fewer mental demons. Yeah. Not that that makes it more or less impressive, but I think like of all places that you could expect a comeback like this to happen at Nadal. For Nadal, I think the Australian Open would be last on that list. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, and then I guess the, the last thing we could do is just, you know, like for the young guys, <laughs> for the guys 25 and under, I mean, once again, we have a slam where they were all so close, you oh, know, God. also five centimeters away. <laughs> but yet again, Djokovic and Nadal continue to show why they're yeah. just a league above, even at 10, 12 years older outlasting yeah. their op- their younger fresher opponents it is totally amazing i mean i mean like how does this make any sense like i thought i mean i thought it was clear that medvedev had the mentality where he was not going to blow a lead like this 
I thought yeah. I thought this would never happen to him. I also thought it was not going to happen for Nadal, especially against world number two U.S. Open champion, fit guy, mentally strong guy. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me. I like. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, for man. me, the, think... the explanation is, I guess, when they're both tired, and their backs are against the wall. Who would you pick more? I, like, I mean, I would, I would pick Nadal. Extent. He's mm, like the yeah. he's the more tactically sound player, but still, like. Five five hours and twenty four minutes at thirty five years old against. I guess it yes. just I think that the biggest difference, um, and not to say like oh because it's an all time great because like this is not an objective thing like argument for it but like I think it's just the sense that like mentally and emotionally these guys are different like I mean they developed something in in their games and in their heads and some sort of confidence that allows them to pick up pick plan a plan b plan c and decide which one is better for which situation and still fight um and be able to be in that one point at that moment and i think that's kind of all lacked from medvedev i think of course the the crowd as we discussed like was a little too much but um he didn't have that many excuses to blow up that lead seriously like no. um yeah. of course all credit to nadal but like Med- medvedev dropped his level significantly in specific points and as, as you as you guys said like he failed to convert like a few points he failed to finish points the right way uh and that just kind of like opened up the the door for nadal and i think it's um that's probably a little bit of a difference between an all-time great and a generational great because uh, it's like maybe Medvedev is gonna go and win another four majors, you know, like maybe three. But where is this going to put him against uh, Nadal? Like at the end of their careers, and at the end of everything, like he was still gonna look at it. And it's, I think Marshy said it perfectly at this. And like Prime Nadal would have probably like <laughs> smoked this guy, like seriously. Like um, yeah. it's just very very difficult to you know beat these guys just not necessarily because it's difficult to play against them but just because it's just difficult to close them out <laughs> so yeah and, and the thing is yeah. that like it's a little bit different like with Djokovic you know I notice he he manages his he manages the match you know he manages the best of five set match he has his ups and downs he lets a set go he lets he lets a few games go here and there but when it really counts he's dialed in and he goes in lockdown mode whereas Nadal it's the same intensity every every single point there's just no sort of dip in his attitude and his intensity. And that makes you just, because he's, that's what I really mean when, when he says that he's willing to suffer, you really see that like every single point he's willing to suffer. Whereas Medvedev, you know, I felt like some of that energy came back at the fifth set, you know, mm-hmm. when he did break, he was still, he looked better physically to me than he's not, not quite in good shape, not in quite as good of a shape as Rafa did, but he definitely found that little bit extra in that fifth set. That means that it was there in the third mm-hmm. and fourth set. And it was just untapped and he didn't yeah. quite, mm-hmm. he didn't quite use it. And and that's where I feel like, and then that's when you started to see some of the shot selection go and you started to notice like just how complete Nadal's game is in the four court area, just mm-hmm. how he handles the drop shot, how he handles the slices, how he he's so comfortable finishing points at the net, how he can go to plan B and C, not only go to it, but he knows with certain that he'll be able to execute it under pressure. Yeah. Where I mean, he, yeah. He's having to change his technique. He's having to scramble. He's having to come up with 15 different kind of, ways to finish points that isn't your standard that isn't your standard go-to rafa play you know it's like it, it's like he's having to 
he's having to come up with other ways apart from his serve to win points that gives him cheap offense. And, you know, normally he doesn't, he can just purely just rely on his serve or he can just, mm-hmm. he, he has, he doesn't quite have enough ways to finish points. And I think yeah. that's, it, it just showed in that, in that moment. Yeah. And just, yeah. but I, but I do think take nothing away from him because I do still think he can win another three majors. Like it's not, you know, at, especially at on the hard court yeah. at, at this level, he's certainly a cut above everyone else on a hard court. So you'd figure definitely he, he's going to have many more chances, Yeah, but it's yeah. just, it's just tough yeah. for him to swallow that defeat. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, um, I think one of Nadal's most unique traits that the next gen are kind of lacking is just the, the pure willingness to change up his tactics in the middle of a match. Like he, um, he's stubborn in that he believes in himself, but he's not stubborn enough that he thinks no matter what his plan A is going to be good enough to get it done. Like if something's not working, he will change. Um, and I think the way he played in the fourth set, like, you know, bullets down the line, um, hitting winners was almost unrecognizable compared to the way he played in the first, which was like more engaging in these long rallies. I didn't really feel like Medvedev was ever willing to do that. Um, I I thought that was a good point you made about, um, suffering Vonch. And I I think Gil Gross said that on three as well, that Medvedev, um, couldn't really tap into that willingness to suffer in the middle of the match. Um, and yeah, I mean, Nadal played this match like it was the last match of his career. Um, mm-hmm. I think Medvedev played well, very well at times, but he did not play this match like it was the last of his career. And that's that's really what you have to do because I, I don't think it's a lack of talent with the next gens. Like, I don't think... I don't think it's lack of talent. I would yeah, say it's, it's, yeah. more, I think, it's more things in their yeah. skill set that's missing. You know what I, I mean? feel like yeah. in a sense, uh, or, yeah, it, in, in terms of Medvedev, like he, he obviously wouldn't played this match at 25 years old like you don't necessarily play like it's the mass latch of your career but he could have at least played it like he, as if he was his last australian open chance you know because yeah. that is very well a possibility look at just how long nadal took to win another title in australia right. look at the match that he played against uh, federer to win his first you know what i mean like it's not like he was taking anything of any of this for granted it's like he was in the final he was gonna try to make it happen of course like medvedev did try this but like isn't probably like a like of of uh, something in in the skill set, and to be just the fact that Nadal finished this match with a backhand volley, <laughs> how much of a statement is in that for 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 yeah. Nadal, right? Like it, you're you're down, you're up match point. It, it was forty love to be fair, but like so he would have a little bit more leeway to try things. But how many players wouldn't be like a match point and just say, "I'm just gonna play my A game because I just gotta keep the ball in." Nadal right. just goes into the net and hits a volley and screws up Medvedev's chances of like winning his first Australian Open yeah. so yeah like and, it's, and it was it was so emblematic yeah. of the way he's evolved as well like the whole exactly. way he played that point like that those yeah. that forehand and the volley aggressive but high margin there was no way he was going to miss either of them like well within the lines and yet far enough out of Medvedev's reach yeah. that they were going to be point winning shots yeah. um I mean and I think yeah for Medvedev like this I still think this was a choke like you can you can say um I, I don't think you can say he should have broken at three, two in the third. And that was the moment. I mean, like, are you saying that from two sets up and three, all Nadal was the favorite to win that match? Like Medvedev had a billion well, we were still chances thinking, to win you know, this. He'll have a yeah. chance on the fourth and he's yeah. still the favorite to win it, that. It, yeah, and yeah. he did. He had um, like, he did not open the door for Nadal. He opened the door for Nadal and then pushed him through. Like, and, and I mean, I and, and what's I, so inexcusable for me is that he's making 80% of plus of more returns in the first four sets. And then in the 50, and then when he has three break chances at three, two in the fifth, he misses all those returns on his backhand on the yeah. ad side. Like that's his bread and butter. Like he can make that in his sleep, yep. you know? So it's like, how do you explain that? Like, yeah. I mean, 
I, I think he he should have won the fourth set. I mean, yeah. he he had break points to get back on serve at four all. He had a yeah. game point at two all. I, I think if he wins that two all game, which he saved six break points, I think he probably wins the match. That yeah. puts him with a lot of momentum and three games away from the match. Um, yeah. But like so many chances, you could write a book about all these chances. Um, it was kind of similar yeah. for Tsitsipas at the French Open last year. I mean, again, there his moment well, was like yeah, up I two think... sets had game points for like two all yeah. in the third but i'm like even getting broken there you should still win two sets up and a breakdown you should win that 99 out of 100 times i really didn't right? at that in that match i mean since he never had a chance after that it was like just, no he didn't. it was i mean he didn't even get to break point it was just it was just cruise control but medvedev here i mean yeah. he had he stuck around all, like, and which it's, was it's good. A, yeah and it's, it's one thing about like those two matches it just shows a little bit like this particular generation like Medvedev kind of had a little bit of like a resurgence as you were talking like in the fifth set and like he broke back and he failed to like hold his serve but like got back to add and he was fighting for that game he was it's not like he he choked that one out or like he definitely felt a little bit more physically depleted at that point but and the same for for Tsitsipas like and he started playing some of his best tennis like in the last two games of that match. Like he yeah. saved a match point in the backhand down the line, which is freaking ridiculous. It's like, why haven't you been able to play this like for the past two sets where you were leading? It's yeah. like and, and you know something is needs to I don't think that something needs to change, but like there's just it's a little telling, it's just like of the difference in which they approach probably their matches and yeah. the reason well not the reason, but like how how to lead properly, you know. Yeah, and I mean, they're both battling some kind of demons. I mean, Medvedev's five-set record isn't, like, thoroughly amazing. I mean, yeah, he beat Felix coming back from two sets to love down, but he usually wins all of his matches in straight sets. I mean, this was the first match at a major he's lost on a hard court after winning the first set. Like, it's... And, you know, they, they come back and they win five-setters all the time against, you know, other players, but there's just something about getting over the line against these two guys and you know Medvedev knows what what's at stake i mean he he got all of his all the returns back on those three break points he at least got them back right so mm-hmm. it's not like he wasn't in in any of those points mm-hmm. like but you know and then giving away the break back at five ball and you can point to many many chances but it's just it's just yet another thing of like they'll just have to live and learn live and learn yeah and then eventually and they get over the line. And I mean, Medvedev does have a major and he yeah. did back it up here. He does. And and he's still the yeah. guy in the next gen. But I, like I, one of them needs to win a close match in a major final against these guys. Yeah. Like, do, do you That's really That's the next want... step is doing it yeah. in a major final against the big three. Like when yeah. they're playing well. I mean, and like, do you honestly, really want... Yeah. I feel like their chances are getting slimmer because I feel like if it's not this year, like next year, they won't... I don't think Djokovic and Adal will be reaching them any finals in Grand Slams. Like... Yeah, Nadal did reach the Australia. You don't know how long they will last anymore. Like every every year that comes along, every season is like, is is this the one? Like Federer is playing at forty, but like he's technically just in the in the ranking systems, but like it's not necessarily like there anymore. Yeah. So yeah, I think to their advantage, and they do still have age on their side. Like the Medvedev is probably a solid like, ten years still of like high level playing. Antisipa is probably like 13 still. Um, yeah, who, who knows? I mean, it's, it's yeah, I mean, Medvedev said he isn't going to want to play past 30. Uh, so okay. who knows so that, if that holds up? Well, well he, yeah, he, he still has chances to change his mind. Moment, in emotional yeah. in the moment kind of yeah. thing, I mean, you know. Maybe, but, but I, think, I think it's also easy to take for granted and say like 35 is the new like 25. But 
like yes but only for the big three you know i mean i think it's important to remember these people are are different a different breed i mean and i think yeah. and i don't think, think we should be comparing them all the time like yeah. you know yeah. to, to that status because this is truly once in a million yeah. generation like this is not this these kind of three we're never going to see like, champions like that at least for the in our yeah immediate future like it's, it's yeah just, I, mean, I, I don't see it happening ever again honestly and i think but all the same i think the next gen there's there's some time pressure here i think if yeah. nadal and djokovic can continue to win everything until they get too old that they just decide to retire when they're still on top like how is that going to feel as a next gen like i was not good enough i needed the guys who were better than me to get so old that they couldn't play anymore and then finally i was able to win i don't think anyone wants to feel that like i think you need to and i think team even talks about this he was like we want to beat these guys while they're still here like time's running out you know they're I think you could argue that they're getting more dominant. Like Djokovic and Nadal are winning majors on their worst surfaces now. Um, mm-hmm. Like you still, something needs to change. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a gap in best of five. Yeah, and, and to be fair, sure. it's something that I don't even know if something needs to change. I've just as you said, like it's a once in a million situation. It's like maybe nothing can change about it. Like maybe this is just the way it is. And by like 40 years time when we're we're going on and on interviews with like Tissi Pazimeva they're just going to be like yeah you know they were just that good I just couldn't beat them it's it's just because they were who they were that we just had to wait on them to retire so that we couldn't beat them even though we got close they were just just a little bit ahead that they just could pull it the the wins against us at the end of the day as long as you max out your career you do what you can control you stay as injury free as you mm-hmm. can and you keep the motivation burning i mean that's all that really matters yeah i mean yeah. you know sitsipas for example he's still two and a half full years younger than medvedev is right and it's very easy to compare them and, and all of this but you know it it does happen and things happen you get injured you have to come back there's so many ups and downs yeah. really i mean look at team for example this year we all thought this was going to be his season and he's not even been able to play most of it so i, I thought 2021 would be his season um <clears throat> Yeah, but I I do have a question. Um, for for Nadal and Djokovic, what does what does the count look like at the end of this year? And let's assume that Djokovic can play at the next three majors. If he can play, then I give Nadal a French. I give Djokovic a Wimbledon, and I give one of the next gen the U.S. Open. Yeah, I would say that too. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Like it's you know the first two majors are are going to be tough for these guys to win as long as these two guys are around. I mean, I'm never believing Nadal again when he says I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not physically ready for this tournament or something like that because right. he's reminding me now of the guy in school who's like, I never study, I never do any prep. Uh-huh. I, yeah. you know, and then I, magically, I'm just one days. I'm so underprepared, and then he gets a hundred. Like it's, right. you know, well, I mean, I'm just I'm I'm just making fun, like in, in terms yeah. of how other players might perceive it. It's like you can never count these guys out. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm trying to prove. Right. I, I mean, all the same though, it did feel like. Nadal played this match in a way that like he can't play every match like something I was wondering was like even though Nadal we say he plays every match like it's his last um I did wonder if he had like an extra gear for like a final um and I and I feel like he did but I feel like he could not have played other matches like this on the way to the final you know Mm -hmm. I feel like in a way this is maybe almost not reproducible at least not for every match yeah Yeah. he did say when he was asked about his foot he said he felt no pain which is so, I mean, yeah. I, I think that is huge. I mean, that goes to show that some of the stuff in the first two sets were just about figuring Medvedev out, just yeah. figuring out this guy. Maybe it was just the nerves. Maybe it was just the occasion. But mm-hmm. when he really did get going, it was really all about the tennis at the end of the day. 
yeah. so I think that's, that's really good that's, really that's good to hear and it, it's it's in, back to Owen's question about the slam distribution but like it, it would be really curious and interesting to see like Djokovic has won almost a calendar grand slam last year and I would give the exact same answer as, as Bunch did. And how crazy it is that like Nadal finishes this year with two Grand Slam, Djokovic is, finishes with one. <laughs> and yeah. I think that because of... Uh, there is a lot of things to consider outside of tennis, of course, but Djokovic is a um, winning tally, which is sad, seriously, but uh, um, that he's letting something like this get in the way. But of course, like it's it's his own mind so like we can't really change that yeah. um and i don't think there's many coaches that would be able to <laughs> do that either but like um yeah i mean you would hope if after this, yeah just yeah i would imagine that like he would at least go after the us open one more time like you know, after losing this hardcore slam so i have certain yeah. beliefs i don't believe in taking the vaccine for myself but you know i i, I hate it I, i had to get surgery i i did that you know that wasn't in my belief system either so you know if i can do that why don't i just you know, take one for me and for the team, for everyone else, and just just get the jab. I mean, you would think he would think like that, but you just don't know. And you, you, yeah. knowing him, there's no there's a there's no guarantee he'll do it. So I, I mean, I'll tell you, if this tournament won't make him get it, no ten, no kind of tennis result will. True. I mean, this went as badly for him as it could have, and um, so if this doesn't get him to do it, then he's yeah. he's. And, what I will say is that it, it's at least it's not like a a given like pencil it in, you know, and double up in the French or like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do think there's still there there are still some guys who are pushing on, you know. Suddenly, sixty parts becomes a much bigger factor when the clay comes around. His his return of serve weakness is hidden him a lot more, yeah. and then you have you know if team suddenly comes back, you have, you know, you have a few two or three other players, but really it's it, it's so hard to bet against Djokovic and Nadal. Yeah. Like it's yeah. just so hard. I, yeah. I mean, I think after this, Nadal is starting to feel like another. A monster favorite for the French again because I feel like mm-hmm. if he doesn't have yeah. the foot pain like and if he can run for a while then like what what's going to happen like maybe Djokovic goes god mode again and beats him but like is anyone else going to do it I can't possibly yeah. see it yeah yeah it would be it'd be interesting to see when Clay comes back around it, it would be interesting to see like what Nadal's schedule going to look like as well uh, up to then Mm-hmm. And I seriously doubt that he's going to be playing both Miami and Indian Wells. He might play one or the other. Um, but yeah, like we'll just, we just have to kind of like wait and see. And obviously with the whole Djokovic situation, just wait and see like whatever he decides to do, because it seems just more and more likely that every tournament is going to be requiring um, that, you know, that thing and that protocol. And it's going to be a little bit harder for people to defend To, to accuse Australia specifically of that because, right. well, if, if the whole world is doing this, it means that it's not just... Uh... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know, I think against Djokovic, which it probably wasn't in the first place. But yeah, I guess like without getting back into this whole fiasco again, 
Um, you can listen to that episode of Unction and Owen recorded early on. It's so uh, that... early because it was a whole week worth <laughs> right. of events afterwards. But yeah, that's okay. I mean, we've probably heard it enough, and I don't. Yeah, think absolutely. Those, yeah, um, it's it's just nice to talk again. about tennis, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that was good. I think this was a really fun tournament. Like, I I was able to watch um more of this than any other Australian Open so far. And I managed to keep enough um, mental capacity to write some stuff as well, which I couldn't do last year, um, which was nice. Yeah, I, I was I was debating this the other day, like what is better, the first week of a major or the second week of a major? And I came to the conclusion that it was the second week, just because the first week there's so much chaos and you don't have enough devices, you don't have enough attention span to watch every single thing. And it's like 75% of the draw is out by the third round. And then you can really, yeah. because what I like to do is I really like to watch one match and just deeply analyze it like how we did here. And I feel like that is so much good, so much better for coverage, for in-depth analysis and things that we like to do here on this podcast. And it just made me think that's why I just love the second week of these majors more now, because you can really just focus on one or two, three matches of the day and just yeah. Yeah. have that be like one of the turning points. Like, Yeah, I I totally agree. But I think with the caveat that the finals are good, because I feel like yes. if the finals are not good, then the first week can be better. Like I'm imagining if... um. I mean, well, so the what I'll say is, I'll say from the but... third round onwards. Yeah. Is when, yeah. No, no is when, like... Yes, I I agree with that because I'm trying to imagine if the men's final was a dud, and I think if it was, that puts a very different complexion on the end of the tournament. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's been a lot of fun. We got a lot yeah. of good tennis, yes. and sure. let's just hope we keep getting more five setters because it just proves that point home yes. again and again and again. That no, it's really good. <laughs> Give us all the five setters. We've had it's six really, of the last yeah. ten majors be five setters in over four hours, and it's yeah. like may this trend continue because yeah. tennis wins. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I hope uh, everybody at home listening to this podcast like like this podcast and enjoyed also the Australian Open. Um, we'll not take a break from tennis, but like <laughs> obviously our episodes are probably going to be less. Uh, I wouldn't say interesting just because it's probably going to be like not a lot of things happening, but Dubai is around the corner and normally that gives in a, a lot of good the, matches. The, the return of Novak as well. Exactly. Okay. So we're going to probably like switch a little bit of our focus to like other players who are up and coming, uh, which is kind of refreshing than just talking about Nadal Djokovic all the time. Yeah. So I mean, we'll see who all emerges out of this yeah. golden swing on the clay and we'll see if that yeah. has any impact for Roland Garros and Absolutely. You know, hopefully team can come back healthy. Yeah. Del Potter is coming back. Yes, we'll really Pitch excited again. for that. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, going to be a lot of stories. Yeah, yeah. be sure to check out Popcorn Tennis. Andre just wrote a fire piece about crowd noise, yeah. Um, yeah. and we covered a bunch of Australian Open stuff, pieces upon pieces there. So let us know what yeah. you think. All right. So yeah, thanks for listening. Um, I am at Rollenberg Andre. Vanish is at Vanish UK. Owen is at Tennis Nation, and we are at Tennis and Bagels and Popcorn Tennis at popcorn tennis one i think close enough <laughs> what is we're, it we're working on getting a better ten- handle popcorn underscore tennis one. <laughs> okay underscore tennis <laughs> one. yeah all right so thanks for listening and uh we'll see you guys in the next episode bye